John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, if you have a question about 753 through 811 there, come to Sunday school next week. Shameless plug. Amen. All right, John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let us ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, we do ask that you would give life and light. That we might see and live. That we might know Christ. Have your spirit work within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting how many of the metaphors that Jesus uses 
are a bit of a reach for us to kind of really appreciate in our current postmodern scientific world. A lot of times I kind of have to figure out how to ways to, if we can, bridge the gap between where we think it is and where he intended it to mean. I've joked about this with the Atkins diet and I am the bread of life and how bread is a dirty thing right now because we have so much food everywhere. This one is uh, another one hard for us to maybe, I guess, bridge that gap a little bit, thinking about the idea of light and how special light is. And maybe that's largely because we're never really in the dark anymore. I mean, if you have, still have good vision, your house is never really dark anymore, is it? You have smoke detectors that have the little green indicator light. You have a modem that flashes or whatever, a router in your house. It's like you can't really quite get it truly dark. And even if you could figure out a way to kind of, we have street lights outside, we have light pollution from the city, we don't really experience darkness that often. Some of us, if we're going to think about, well, when was the last time I remember something really dark? Uh, okay, maybe, maybe if we've been, you know, uh, camping or something, I don't know. Okay, maybe, maybe when you were a kid, you got to go caving with maybe the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or something like that. They took you spelunking and everybody sits in the circle in the cave and you have your flashlight and all, all the little kids are scared and everything. And they tell you, okay, on the count of three, everybody turn your lights out. You know, and you turn the flashlight out and you're like, whoa. For me, I, I have one distinct experience that any time I need to think of darkness, I can remember. Some of you have heard the story. I went caving not just as a little kid. I went in college. And through a series of what can only be described, not as unfortunate circumstances, but foolish decision after foolish decision after foolish decision after foolish decision, we ended up in a situation, my buddy Sam and I, not this Sam, another Sam, ended up in a cave 100 feet below ground, with no one knowing where we were. Oh, it was a cave that was unmarked. Forgot that part. With flashlights dying. And sitting at the very bottom of the hole, we're confronted with the reality of we had one really good set of batteries, and it needed to go in the other flashlight. And for, again, a multitude of really poor reasons, ended up swapping batteries to flashlights. And, of course, it didn't work. We sat for over an hour, in the bottom of a cave, a hundred feet down, in complete and total darkness. And it's interesting to see what happens to the human psyche sitting in complete and total darkness, because Sam and I are both, I would say, fairly confident men, at least we were then, young and particularly foolish, as the story demonstrated. But it's amazing how quickly hymns start coming to mind when you've been sitting in the total darkness for an hour. We thought that was it. We thought we can't see anything, and because we can't see anything, there's no hope for us to get out. And the reality of the matter is, we were 100% right. Without the ability to see the way out of the cave, we would never be able to exit the cave. Now, spoiler, we didn't die. But I tell you, emotionally, we were pretty raw when we got out. Two college-aged guys having to ponder their own death pretty intimately for about an hour and a half. 
I mean, the way that we finally figured out, praise God for his mercy, we had a camera with us to take pictures. And we ended up using the camera to take enough snapshots to help us get stuff reassembled to work. We were so disoriented after an hour and a half, Sam was sitting where this Sam is. And my first picture, I was trying to take a picture of Sam, my first picture would have been of Grady. I could have touched him and I couldn't find out where he was. So disoriented, so lost, so hopeless. Now, many of us can't relate to that as dearly and as intimately as what I can. It makes me sweat right now. I'm like, it makes the hairs on my arms stand up. But it's in the midst of a world like that that Jesus is talking about darkness. Think about traveling in a world in which there's no electricity. And if you don't have fire, you don't see. Think about living in a world in which if you don't light the lamps, if you run out of oil, it's a really dark night for you. They understand this concept. Darkness for them is not just some kind of far-off entity. It's something that's tangible and real. Darkness sneaks into the corners of their house every night, and eventually there's a point where it gets dark enough that you have nothing else to do. You go to bed because you can't see. It's in the midst of that darkness that Jesus then begins to explain his ministry. He's explaining it within the context of a festival. You remember this is chapter 7 as well. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And part of this uh, feast, they used uh, water. They had the big pouring ceremony. But at the beginning of the week, they had a lamp lighting ceremony where they would have had these special lamps with huge basins with lots of wicks that they would have lit in the temple in the middle of the night. And it would have lit up the temple and the city as much as would have been seen in that time. It was a season of light for them, a light in the midst of the darkness. And here Jesus picks up on uh, their already kind of common experience to explain to them yet again, I am the light of the world. This is a, common, uh, a concept that's common for many of us as believers. Uh, certainly a passage we've thought about many times. Jesus is the light of the world, but maybe forgetting to kind of pick up on the two key elements that showcased as Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of man. Christ is the light of man. This means first that he is the source of spiritual illumination. Much like my buddy Sam and I sitting at the bottom of the cave, without a light source, we had no way to navigate out. Uh, Part of our difficulty out was that way, and we were really in trouble. But without light, you can't see, you, you can't be aware of the world in which you live. There's no illumination, there's no understanding, there's no ability to discern what's up and what's down, what's left and what's right, what's a gigantic hole in the floor and what's not. You, you can't tell, you can't see, there's no safety to navigate anywhere. And Christ is here explaining that he serves that same function, not physically, but spiritually. That if you want to understand the lay of the land spiritually, you have to look at Christ. He's the one who brings illumination to the spiritual world, to the world that we can't see with our physical eyes. This is a wonderful thing to think about because we are innately wired to exist in the spiritual world and to understand that. Even young children understand there's more to life than just this. There's something more. And Christ is illumining it. He is the one who showcases it, who displays 
spiritual illumination. And the other thing here that's so key to note is that he, he doesn't say, I am a light of the world. I, I am a light source. I am, you know, the, the fluorescent lights in your home. I am the warm and pleasant colored lamp that you turn on instead when you want to read. I am a light source in your life. You want to know what spiritual truth is. I am one of the places you may find that. No, rather than say the, it's, it's, he is the only one. He's the only one that's providing light. He is the only source of spiritual illumination. This is what Christ introduces this conversation with to proclaim himself both to be the source of spiritual illumination, something the Jews understood, and to be a definitive, the only one, declarative. He is the way to spiritual understanding. They get this, they understand this in the context of their era, in the context of the time, in the context of religious worship, and in the context of a claim that would have been, even in this time, offensive to them. The Jews would have been offended. They are offended. They're going to go after him here in just a minute. Being disappointed, disagreeing, being grumpy and sad, being angry, eventually killing him for saying he is the way and the only way to spiritual illumination. Now the reality of the matter is the world in which we live today is not that different from the time in which Christ is now ministering. It was a time in which many people thought there were multiple ways that you could get some sort of spiritual illumination, some sort of understanding In many cases, they look to themselves, look to their own experiences, their own ability to process the world around them to help them find meaning and understanding and value, to find truth, to find reality. And Christ cuts through all of their excuses and all of their reasons and all of their stuff and says, no, 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 no. I am all of those things. I am the light. I am the light in the darkness. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the hope that you desperately need. And the world in which we live is identical in this regard. Our culture today says, if you want to find spiritual illumination, what do you do? Well, ultimately the answer our culture gives is whatever you want. <laughs> whatever's going to help you. Whatever's going to make you feel better. If you need to go for a trip to kind of find out who you are, okay, fine. If you need to read Eastern mysticism, okay, fine. If you need to read French philosophy, okay, fine. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do to help you sort out your world. In fact, actually, it's shocking how much even our culture today, that they're comfortable with the idea that Jesus can be a source of light. But he can't be the source of light. Some of you may have seen this in the news this week, but in the United Kingdom, uh, a man, a pastor was taken to uh, court for some various reason. And the prosecutor, he was the defendant, the prosecutors were talking about his ministry. And part of their prosecution, part of their argument was, it is logically and completely physically impossible that Christ's claims for gospel truth are real. It was amazing. Court of law in the UK They say, and basically the prosecutors were comfortable saying, he can be a source. He can't be the source. 
His claims at uniqueness cannot stand. Therefore, you as a pastor are not allowed to proclaim them the way that you have been. Wow. In the UK of all places. It's not far from here. It's interesting to see what's the, the problem. The problem is the article. The, it's the, the uniqueness. It's the onlyness. It's that Christ is the way. I love watching this particularly around uh, this time of year as it's you know, quickly approaching Easter. Um, uh, already CNN has their article out about why Jesus isn't who he said he was. He, they run it every year. They just find a different scholar to write it. It's hysterical. It's terrible scholarship. It's completely wrong and it's completely predictable. We can't let Jesus be who he says he is because that's offensive because he claims to be unique. He claims to be the only one. If you love the History Channel, man, they're hysterical during Easter season. Absolutely hysterical. Because they can't deal with that. That Christ is the only one, the only way to heaven. Well, it's interesting. Christ is the light of man. He's the light of mankind, men and women, boys and girls that belong to him. But it's interesting what happens with that light. He explains here. This is the first part. This has been explained kind of in the book of John. Where it's to say, I am the light of the world, unique. Okay, whoever follows me is transformed. And there's two elements to kind of this transformation. They will not walk in darkness. And they will have the light of life. And these two parts are key because one is it makes sense. That's the purpose of light. It's, it's illumination so you don't have to walk in the dark anymore. You don't have to go traveling around in your life and your existence not knowing what's safe and what's not. It showcases the world for what it is. When I was in seminary, it was, uh, that was the February that we had the massive ice storm um, that was, let's see, oh, 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 04, somewhere in there, 03, 04, somewhere, 03. I was living in downtown Charlotte, and I was in the bottom of a split-level house, living with a bunch of roommates, and we were all actually providentially hanging out in the basement of the house when the power went out with the ice storm. And it wasn't just the power to our house or to even our kind of street or even to our neighborhood, which was a very large neighborhood. The entire grid for our portion of Charlotte went out. Now, normally you could go out in our backyard in Samaria and read the newspaper in like, like two in the morning. The light pollution was so bad, you could take a newspaper and see just clearly. But it was funny because as seminary fellows, our house was not particularly clean. It was certainly not well organized. And there were no ladies there, so it was really quite disgusting. And not really a safe place to exist. But when all of the lights for Charlotte go out, suddenly when you're sitting in the basement, it's not a really great place to be. Because you have to figure out how to, one, figure out how to get to safety, and two, get to a light source. Okay. No lighters, no matches, I mean, no candles. We were boys. We didn't have any of those. What do we do for a light source? And then how do we figure out how to get there? It took us 20 minutes to find a lighter. And largely because we knew our entire house was arranged with all kinds of wonderfully sharp and imperfectly placed things where you crack your toes or your shins and wandering through the house in the dark trying to find your way was actually unbelievably scary, considering it was the house that we lived in. 
You see, that's the, the, the kind of counterpoint. That's the way the world lives today is they're fumbling through their life, kind of having to always protect their shins and toes because they never know when there's something sharp in the way, when they're going to catch their toe on the brick mantle or whatever in the house. They, they have no idea. Worst case yet is that this world is filled with pitfalls, so they don't even know when there's a hole in front of them or a trap. God's people instead are given the light of Christ, and so we do not need to walk in darkness. In fact, actually, not do we walk in darkness, but we have Christ's light that is within us so that this illumination now doesn't just simply come from the outside in his presence, but we're transformed so that it flows over from the inside as well. As we are made new, Christ shares that light that we have understanding as well. And it's probably not possible to emphasize this strongly enough. In the world in which we live, so much of Southern Christianity has reduced Christianity to a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's like Monopoly, some really perverse version of Monopoly. Oh, you got your get-out-of-hell-free card. Here's your card. Hang on to it. You'll be okay. And we've reduced it so that we don't see that. You know what the major part of what Christianity is? is that as Christ transforms you, he helps you navigate life. He helps you navigate middle school, freshman year of college, helps you navigate first year of marriage, having children, changing jobs, losing a job. He provides illumination and understanding in the midst of all of those things so that when we are processing good things, we have the framework to do it. We're processing bad things. We have the framework to do it because we can see for what it really is. We don't have to rest on luck. We don't have to rest on some sort of kind of perverse Murphy's Law. We don't have to just kind of hope for the best. We may rest in God's perfect understanding of the world. This is a pretty sweet deal. I mean, if you're actually paying attention to what Christ says... I'm the only one who has spiritual illumination, and I give it freely to my people. And the interesting thing is how polarizing that statement is. And the Jews here respond terribly. Now, to understand a little bit about how this Jewish response uh, looks, I want to skip ahead and just highlight real quick. Go to verse 23. In his interaction with the Jews, Jesus is going to help us kind of frame out to to see perspective of what their response looks like. What does he say about their condition? You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. He's expressly and explicitly kind of, these are not the good guys he's talking to. These are the people that are just like our neighbors and just like our friends and just like our family, but they're not the people that are on Christ's side. These are explicitly, and this is about as hard as he says it anywhere, these are people that do not believe in him, they do not know him, and he's, I mean, verse 21, he says, you're going to die in your sin. They're not yet Christians. So in light of this promise of Christ or the statement of Christ being the light of the world, in light of the promise to share that with his people, they respond... In kind of three different ways. There's one kind of overarching theme, but they in three different ways. They respond in pride, overwhelming pride. And great book on this section. C.S. Lewis writes a book on this passage called God in the Dock. 
And God in the Dock is a fantastic book. He, the Dock is something we don't have here in America. It, it means on the stand. And so if you're going to put it in kind of non-British English, put it in American English, it would be God on trial. And Lewis reduces the entirety of the human existence, the entirety of human sin in this passage. All of the problem of the pride, the arrogance, the foolishness of the Jews to the fact that they elevate themselves over the Lord to evaluate him. And they do it just very quickly, I mean, just very quickly, a couple of ways. The first is over the question of authority. Jesus gives the, uh, the offer of this uh, spiritual light, this life to his people. And so they immediately go after him again for this authority. How do you have, verse 13, how do you, how do you have witnesses, testimony? Come on, you, know, you can't be proof. This is a court of law, and in a court of law, you're required to have witnesses. Lewis is right. They're already taking it to a court proceeding. You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true because you don't have enough witnesses. The law requires two witnesses. You can't be telling the truth. It's interesting. Their argument is so tragically flawed. It doesn't mean you can't be telling the truth. It just means it can't be proven. You have to have two witnesses for it to be established in a court of law. That's what they go after, but Christ undoes it. Very quickly, he responds in saying, oh, no, look, you're looking for witnesses. Well, there's two witnesses. One is me. If I am who I say I am, if I am the Lord of life, if I have come from heaven, my testimony counts. And oh, by the way, so does my Father, the Lord in heaven himself. That's not enough for the Jews, though. Not enough to question him in regards to his witness. So then they were question him really about their experience, uh, but ultimately getting at his truthfulness. They come back to him, verse 19, uh, where is your father? This is the most naive sounding question, but it's not. Because they understand he is proclaiming his father to be God. And so they're asking him for proof. Demonstrate, if you say that you're one of the witnesses and God Almighty is one of the witnesses, where is he? Show us. Give me proof that the Lord is on your side. God condemns them. You know neither me nor my father. It doesn't matter if I testify to you. It doesn't matter if God the Father does. You're not going to believe either because you're pagans. You don't believe. Your hearts are hardened. You're prideful. You are evaluating me by your standards and not by mine. And then verse 25, they come at him again with another question. Who are you? What kind of man are you? Who who are you to say these kind of things? How can you make these truth claims? How can you make these claims at uniqueness? And Christ's response again is so clear. Look, I've been saying it from the beginning. I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. I am your only hope. I am the one the Father has sent. I am salvation. And you're not going to see it. You don't see it. Your hearts are hard. Ultimately, you might see some of you will see it on the cross. But if you don't believe, judgment awaits. And again, this is, I would say, in many ways, the relationship of our time. You look at a culture that which we live and how much they interact with God and His Word, and it's a constant and steady uh, attempt to place myself evaluating God, 
to, to move myself in, into the driver's seat where I can then kind of evaluate God's promises. I read one of my school books yesterday, um, very rapidly, because honestly it wasn't a very good book. But it was from a gentleman who sold hundreds of thousands of books. He's made himself millions of dollars for his ministry. The reason why I have to read this book is because it's one of the most significant books for Christian spirituality in America in the 20th century. So Christians in the 20th century, this guy shaped their faith. And he explicitly says this. Part of the mission of the Christian is to bring yourself into an evaluation of God's word and God's works. It's a sign of maturity. And I'm like, no, no, this is the problem. You're everything that's wrong with the American church. Instead of submitting ourselves to the word of the Lord, instead of listening to what he has to say, instead of readily obeying and asking later why, he's trying to set us up in the driver's seat. Why do I talk about this? Well, because it has kind of major consequences. This attempt to unseat Christ and to move myself in the driver's seat in this conversation for the Jews results in something pretty tragic for them, verses 21 through 24. It results for them in hell. Because they cannot submit themselves to God's word, cannot submit themselves to God's way, cannot submit themselves to the work and word of the Lord, their end result is God's judgment. And the sad truth is, this is still true today. While there are God's saints all over the world, thank the Lord for that, there are many who will not bow the knee because they must be Lord of their own life, because they have to be in the driver's seat. And this is where our culture is. You look around. These are our friends. These are our neighbors. These are our family members. But not just because this ends in hell for them, but also because this natural tendency wants to creep in for us. To have this kind of leeching in from the back of our head where I will still attempt to run the show. Because see, honestly, here's what I did. I tried to get this set up in the sermon. There's really kind of two portraits of people here. There's a person who understands that they live in a world of darkness. And the only source of light they have is Jesus And there's a person who thinks they see just fine and is moting around in the dark thinking it's no big deal. Those are the two categories of people. There's no really kind of third category. There's no no other category. It's you either recognize the brokenness of the world, recognize your own failure, your own darkness, your own need, and therefore look to Christ. Or you trust in self. And you think you've got it all figured out, and you don't need him. And honestly, I I ask you to evaluate yourself, to evaluate your own life. And a simple way to do that is, honestly, just just kind of pay attention to how much you think about Jesus. I mean, when does he show up in your mind? Do you think about him often? At all? 
I mean, you've all been through, almost all of you been through membership committee, I mean, uh, membership interviews here. I can kind of tip my hand. It's the question I always ask, ask everybody. Who's Jesus? Because that's the big question. Are you looking to him as either your only hope of light or are you trusting in self? Well, all right, we have one practical application of that right here in front of us when we come to the table. Because there's really kind of two categories of people uh, when it comes to dealing with the table. Now, we have kind of other gradations of this, but realistically, there's two categories. Those that are trusting in self and those that are trusting in Christ. And if you're trusting in self, it's not your table. If you're trusting in Christ, it could be. Because the reality of the matter is, where does our life and light and hope come from? From Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have provided your Son to illumine our lives in the darkness. Forgive us for attempting to return to the darkness and fill us with Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.